Binge eating disorder occurs more frequently in morbidly obese patients. What implications does this have for bariatric surgery? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dennis Gage. Dr. Gage is an endocrinologist with a subspecialty in metabolism and clinical nutrition. He is an attending physician at Lenox Hill Hospital and Beth Israel Medical Center, and is a clinical instructor in medicine at NYU. Dr. Gage is also the author of The Thinderella Syndrome and director of the Thinderella Lifestyle Change Program in New York City. Welcome to ReachMD. Oh, you're welcome. How are you? I am great. Thank you. So, Dr. Gage, what typically happens when a patient with binge eating disorder has bariatric surgery? Very interesting. You know, a lot of these patients, of course, have psychiatric issues and do have binge eating and emotional eating, both external emotional eating and internal cues that make them want to eat more and uh, and overeat. And what's very interesting about the surgery is that if you look at the number of patients in terms of what happens post-op after they've had the surgery, the binge eating drops dramatically. It goes to almost zero. In one study, it went from 48% before surgery to nothing after. And that's not a surprise because, you know, you got somebody who's binge eating. Now you have a band around their stomach. They just can't binge eat. I mean, if they try to binge eat, they're going to have pain and just throw up. So this aversive phenomenon is going to, you know, just stop it pretty much cold. I think the biggest problem I worry about is, you know, binge eaters obviously have more psychiatric issues. And the question is, how do you counsel these people, first of all, beforehand? You know, I would certainly warn a patient who has typical uh, binge eating disorder. We call it the bed syndrome. And you do see quite a bit of it. You see it at night. It's probably the typical time that these patients are going to do it. We do have medications now. You know, the SSRI inhibitors are not a bad angle to start with, but even before surgery, to see if we get some improvement in their binge disorder. Now, I would also, I'm very careful to warn my patients to say, you know, you're a binge eater. I know you, you go off, you could just down, you know, two quarts of Haagen-Dazs or, or whatever at night. This can't happen after the surgery. I give them a fist model. I show them my fist, and I say, your stomach's not going to even be as big as this. And you just cannot do that, and you have to practice chewing and slowing down technique now. I actually have them start practicing it before the surgery so they know what they're going to get into. Despite this, there's no doubt you're going to get patients who are going to come in and say, I ate, I threw up, and, you know, they get all distressed. One of the interesting things is with the adjustable band, which is the latest banding, gastric banding procedure that's being done now, the surgeon has an ability to actually adjust the tightness of the band. And so that many times the patient will have, and especially the large ring bands, patients may get their band put in and may have just very subtle changes in their eating style where they notice that they can't quite overeat the way they used to. And then the surgeon may say, okay, you've gone to group, you're learning, you're chewing, you're understanding what it's about. I'm going to tighten that band up. And what it is is there's a pouch. If, if you're not familiar with the gastric band, there's actually a, a saline pouch that's subcutaneous, and you could actually take a, a syringe, and then by pumping more fluid into the pouch, you, you tighten the ring. So that's why it's an adjustable band. So the major advantage to that, because you don't just traumatize the patient where they, they kind of, go out of the hospital, perhaps they're lost to follow-up. They eat and they, they say, I, you know, I can't even go out to eat now because I, I don't know when I'm going to just throw up suddenly. Most of these people are people who just don't understand chewing, slowing down. And the binge disorder that they've had, it's not 
immediately extinguished because after all, they've been binge eating for many, many years traditionally. Do you ever see kind of the opposite problem where these patients might develop anorexia after surgery? There's actually been a couple of patients who've developed an anorectic-like behavior that, that were described in the literature where they became extremely obsessive-compulsive about their weight, hardly ate. We have seen that, and I've actually seen that with the original gastric surgeries in band, where the pouch was just too tight. Boom, the patient came in. I can't eat. Uh, I, I actually had to carry them through medically with uh, liquid formula for sometimes months. And I've actually had several patients with the old surgeries, bouginage to open up the ring, the pouch. With the new gastric band, we've been, you know, it's dramatically improved. We don't get that patient. I think that concept of starting out not too constricted and working with the patient really lets the clinician and the surgeon work together as a, as a group. I should mention, by the way, that one of the biggest problems we have with bariatric surgery, and not necessarily in New York, but across the country in general, is the lack of follow-up. There are a lot of patients who disappear after surgery and never get followed up. With the gastric bypass, certainly there's a lot of malabsorption issues, and we're really encouraging and addressing the issue of following up the bariatric surgical patient as this becomes a larger and larger group of patients in terms of the numbers that we're seeing. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dennis Gage. We are discussing bariatric surgery and binge eating disorder. Now, is it appropriate to have these patients post-op go into a traditional weight loss program to get more of the behavioral sorts of education? I think it's an absolute necessity. At one point in my practice last year, I, w I was noticing about 20% of my patients were post-gastric or band surgeries. And what was fascinating to me is these patients did fairly well with the surgery, but when they came to group, they lost even more weight. They really optimized the procedure. I had a patient in the 400-pound range who lost the first 120 pounds very nicely with the surgery, but was still significantly obese and with the group proceeded to lose another 70 pounds. So I, I think that, you know, the success of a bariatric procedure is not just the technique. Obviously, technique is critical, but it goes beyond that. You have extremes. You're going to see people who've had the surgery, and two or three years later, they're only down 15 pounds. And you say, well, what happened? I regained. I don't know. I'm emotionally, I'm an emotional eater. So they've never came for instruction, for technique, for support. So minimum is a support group so that these people could talk and understand that, yeah, guess what? If you eat chocolate M&Ms, it's going to go down smooth, and you can actually get a lot in. If you have a milkshake, it's going to go down easier. We don't want you to do that. You have to purposely eat something where you have to chew it a lot. I would wonder, too, in a group situation, is there some uh, sibling rivalry here between the post-op people, if there are that many, 20% post-op versus people that haven't had bariatric surgery? You know, I would tend to think that the surgery patients might be considered sort of cheaters or they had it easy and I'm, you know, I'm working harder than you are. Is, is that a problem? You'd think that unless you present it as a technique. I say Mrs. Jones, who's in the group, has had an internal behavioral technique, a change in the structure of her stomach, which is a tool that she's going to use to help pattern the rest of her lifestyle. And then people raise questions, say, well, do you think I'm a candidate? And then this is where it comes out that it automatically is going to change eating behavior or you're going to get sick. And patients understand much more what it's about. 
as opposed to Mrs. Jones coming in and saying, I had this great surgery. I'm never going to gain weight anymore. It's unbelievable. You know, that's the movie star, you know, approach where they go and say, wow. Uh, and everybody says, let me run for the obesity surgery. It looks great. How should these patients be evaluated from a psychological perspective before surgery? First of all, I would look at their addictive behaviors. Because you look at binge eating. Do they have other addictive behaviors? Do they do alcohol? Do they uh, do drugs? The reason I ask that is because, you know, um, there are a, a bunch of patients who switch their addictions, if you want to call it, from food to alcohol or from food to drugs. Again, it's a strong psychological issue. So you want to look at that and make sure that these patients are reasonably strong enough to at least go through cognitive therapy and learn to deal with the eating style and not suddenly become addicted to other food substances. When you look at the regular psychological profiles for binge eating and depression, again, we could say that overall these people improve. Even in the worst case, if you take the worst patients in the world, they still improve compared to where they were when they started. Again, it's become much harder to psychologically exclude somebody. I mean, the psychiatrists who see some of these patients may find certain people that are just self-destructive, clearly are just not going to do well, and maybe those are the patients that have to be screened out. But among the binge eaters and among patients who have had even depressive symptoms, they, they actually have improvement. When you study them 100 pounds later, their depressive numbers are better. Roughly what percentage of obese people have binge eating disorder? Ooh, it ranges. You know, I've seen numbers as high as 25%, this so-called nighttime BED, which is the uh, binge eating disorder that occurs at night. The number that sticks in my mind is 5 to 7% very strongly have the syndrome and meet the criteria of eating after evening. They tend not to eat breakfast, which is interesting, and they tend to eat at late at night. Is it part of the obesity syndrome? Is it related to metabolism somehow, or is it strictly psychological? I don't think that has been answered. Well, one thing with those patients is that, uh, again, there's been some success with some of the medications, things like Wellbutrin and uh, Prozac and, and some of the antidepressant medicines seem to help. Now, how about weight loss medicine? Weight loss medicine is a very interesting thing. If we go back to uh, weight loss medicines, and we had a number of them, I guess, in the 60s and early 70s, which were um, successful on short-term behavior. We're talking about Fentermin and what I call the amphetamine-like medications. What happened is it got popularized when the Fen-Fen era hit. I guess Weintraub, when he did his uh, classic studies in the pharmacological journals, it got picked up by clinicians, and we had tremendous success with medication when we had that combo. Fascinating uh, that the combination really, uh, in patients who I never thought would lose weight, uh, really just lost their desire for food and did well. The problem, of course, was when the pulmonary hypertension occurred. And of course, you know, when you have big numbers, you start to see side effects. So I think once you had millions of people on the drugs and the heart valve and pulmonary hypertension hit, everybody got frightened of medicines and kind of ran away from it. But I use medication as a motivator, just like I would use modular food as a way of starting a patient. If they're still having a lack of success, I will add, I feel pretty comfortable with Fentermin if they're cardiovascularly stable. If you look at Fentermin, it's still, I believe, one of the most prescribed drugs for weight loss, despite all the new drugs out there. And I think the reason is is because it's, it's usually 85% effective, and the patient is suddenly successful, at least initiating. The danger is that the patient is going to just say, refill my Adipex, I'm doing fine. And we know, 
um, again, Dr. Wadden, he wrote an article in, in the Archives of Internal Medicine in 2001 where he showed that just medication alone just gave you very subtle weight loss. It was not impressive. Only when combined with behavior modification did you see improvement, statistically nice improvement. And guess what? If you add modular controlled food intake, you know, burn bars, shakes, fruit, a regimented healthy diet, at 1,000 to 1,400 calories, give or take. So not the old diets of 600 calories, but the ones that are uh, what I call low calorie. With medication and behavior mod, Dr. Warden got the best results. At the end of 12 months, had the best weight loss in that group. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Dennis Gage. We have been discussing binge eating disorder and bariatric surgery. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.